My name is Shubh Saran, and this is a podcast series where I explore the life of musicians on and off stage. I'm making this series to ask what it means to be a musician today in the hopes that I can better understand what we do and why we choose to do it. On August 30th, 2020, at the end of what became the second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic in the US, I remember sitting in my apartment staring at an empty calendar of cancelled gigs and tours. I had just moved back to Brooklyn after three months of living in suburban New Jersey, where the pandemic was real but still felt far away. The severity and the lifestyle change hit me when I was back in the density of Brooklyn. New York had changed and life felt very, very different. There was a loss in optimism, a loss in a sense of purpose, and that quintessential New York thing of cramming a bunch of musicians on one tiny stage where all my favorite live musical moments had taken place. All of that was gone, and that's what I was feeling when I picked up my guitar to play this riff. It felt angry, impatient, and a little hopeless. I quickly captured it in a voice note, and like most ideas, I tabled it. I had been messing around with this particular guitar shape for a while after using it on another song on this album called The Other. Initially, the idea was just a variation of that existing song, and I wasn't really intending on creating something new. The riff went on to become Post-Tradition, the last song that I wrote for this album, and a song that eventually became the single for the record. Post-Tradition was an afterthought, sort of a bonus after I had completed the rest of the writing. It was a piece of music that was born out of another one, creating an evolutionary arc that moves through the whole record. From a song that was initially about the struggles of the pandemic, it went on to become something larger, a way for me to question where I fit in and what tradition, if at all, I was supposed to be carrying forward. Today, we're going to be talking about the struggles of making an album during a pandemic while breaking down my song, Post-Tradition. Recording an album in 2020 felt uneasy to say the least. I had set out to create an album the only way I know how, not realizing that this time around we'd have to navigate so many more hurdles. Most of the creation process for the music was done in my home studio alone, without any collaboration from the rest of the band. That summer, we'd check in with each other to see how we were doing, but I was mostly writing music into the void. When I finally started thinking about how to actually record the music I had been writing this whole time, that's when we started hitting major roadblocks with travel and COVID exposure, while collectively relearning how to be performing musicians again. In September 2020, for a brief moment when the COVID numbers in the US started to look slightly more reassuring, I booked a drum recording session in Brooklyn for December 5th, not realizing that a few weeks later, the COVID numbers would actually spike up again, this time worse than ever before. With Angelo Spampanato in California and Josh Bailey in New York, we kept going back and forth on the idea of flying Angelo to New York for the recording session at a time when travel had started to feel pretty scary. For the past four years, we had been recording the two drummers together and had come to learn how important it was for them to record in one room, trading ideas and finessing their parts in real time. The thought of doing it in two different places at two different times just didn't seem like it would work. 
After weeks and weeks of going back and forth on the logistics, we finally decided to fly Angela over and put all the plans in motion, putting deposits down for recording studios and scheduling rehearsals, figuring out how we were going to record an album in the safest way possible. With everything in place, three weeks before the big recording session during one of our Zoom calls, we had to rethink the whole thing. I wanted to talk about this, but I'm just thinking like with the COVID, it's getting kind of out of control. Yeah. So, I mean, if it keeps getting worse, I'm not sure if I'll feel comfortable flying. I don't know. It's just, I'm like watching every day. Mm. The numbers like going way up. Yeah, for yeah. sure. California broke the record for most cases in one day. Yeah. Like 10,000. We're back up to 10,000 a day. Um, I mean, there's still like time before. Yeah. Totally. There's still like three weeks. So, yeah. Yeah. That's I don't want to, I don't want to not come, but. You can hear all of us get collectively sad in the pauses, trying our best to stay optimistic. Preparing the music for this album and recording session had started to mean so much more than just recording another record. At a time when so many people had lost so much, finding a way to feel relevant again as musicians meant more to me than I can possibly explain today. Each time something was cancelled or postponed, it was yet another reminder of the very painful reality we were currently living in. But it's it's also like tough to make a hundred percent call. Yeah, I know it is. It yeah, is. you're in a hard place. I mean, that's just yeah, you know. for sure. No, it really is. Um, I think waiting and seeing is the right is the right approach. Yeah. Yeah, we'll wait and see, and then we'll make a call in like two weeks or something. Uh, see what the situation is. Um, yeah, dude. Uh, I definitely don't want it to become a situation where it feels unsafe anyway, for sure. It's not worth it at that point. In the end, the session did finally end up happening, and Angela was able to actually fly over, taking every single precaution we possibly could, including testing, masking, and quarantining. Well, dude, I mean, let's, you know, let's try and stay positive. Shoot. Yeah. You never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wanted to give you a heads up. Yeah. It's good to lay it out there, too. Like set up realistic expectations and you know that's a fucking unsure time a few weeks after that we hit another roadblock right before my recording session with christian lee who played keys and synth on the record literally like 15 minutes before the session was supposed to start. Like, you were on your way to my house, and you called me, and you're like, dude, I, I don't know if I can come, because, you know, I was in the climbing gym, and someone there tested positive for COVID. And we sort of had to think on the fly. We can't be there in one room working together on it, but is there another way we could get the job done? And I think it takes a certain amount of trust, you know, musician to musician, to allow someone to work on your track without you being present there. We've been working together for a long time and we've developed a sort of mutual trust. And also I think we've become more and more aesthetically aligned, you know, as the more we work together. And so like, I think there was a certain amount of like, oh yeah, even if we're not in the same room, we can still probably be on the same page for a lot of stuff. With my possible exposure, I went into quarantine before getting tested a few days later and started working remotely with Christian. I just would record 
parts, and then we'd catch up, and I'd send you the Audio Movers link, and you'd be able to open it and effectively stream what I was playing. And then you'd give me feedback and be like, this sucked, that sucked, that, that was terrible, um, that was awful. And then I'd go, you know, hang my head for a little bit and I'd try it again. That's exactly how it happened. Uh, <laughs> and then seven months later, the record was done. I think we were able to get into a good workflow where it's like, okay, like I'll do patch a recording, you give me some notes, I do any revisions you know, move on to the next song. And it actually flowed by pretty quickly. I think we got it done in a couple days. And I think I probably gave you way too much stuff to, to sift through. But yeah, we, we made it work in the end, I guess. Getting past all the logistical struggles of recording music during COVID, I found that the creative parts seemed to snap right back into place, as if nothing had really changed. The process for any new record we make starts with me demoing everything at my home studio, programming all the instruments with virtual MIDI sounds. After writing this music in isolation for seven months, in October 2020, before the songs even had titles, I sent very early demos over to Angelo and Josh, sort of marking the beginning of the recording process and the end of my writing process. Super crazy clear demos where it's kind of obvious what we should play, but then Angelo and I have to figure out what we would change to it or who's doing what part of what's important of the thing you probably told us to start with. The main thing is like the backbeat was clear, I think. It was gonna be. Like it had to be that. Well, I guess we met a few times before going into the studio, but things always change once we're in there in physical space together. I think we drew a good job of trying to not step on each other's toes as much as possible. So that was like question one was like, who's going to do it? How, how are we going to do it? We kind of like figured everything out separately. We both kind of came to the table with everything and then we divvied up in like the conversations beforehand or in the studio. Since all the prep work was done remotely, Angelo and Josh created their own parts in isolation and then started sending each other short little voice notes about their ideas. Hey dude, so here's what I think I'm gonna come in with for 19. I think I'm gonna do this splooshy hi-hat thing on the dotted eighth. Um, for me, it's just all about working out the kick drum for this tune. It's a shitload of bass drum at a tempo that feels a little bit like a workout. So I'm really trying to shed getting that consistent and making it feel good. You know! Then the three of us got together for a longer Zoom call to discuss the tiniest key details in the main groove, down to the most minute 16th note hi-hat placements. I've actually, I've been practicing it playing the, like, straight 16th notes on the hi-hat. So, uh, all of them? I don't have to play it that way. That might actually feel better. 
when I hear that voice memo, like I hear these little things and I think that's a result of like a 60 note space in an awkward spot because of the way that the loops line up. So if I just play all 16ths, that might make it feel better anyway. Cool. Yeah. So great. That fixes my problem. I was going to go play myself in a practice room. For <laughs> This is actually one of the first, not this specifically, but this like three like over the bar line thing was one of the first drum grooves that I learned how to play when I was like a wee little, a wee little child. Like my drum teacher was really into it at the time and he was like showing me how to do it. And I, I was like first learning how to play the drum. So I had no idea how the hell to do this, but I spent an enormous amount of time like trying to get it. And eventually did, I was probably like 14 or something. There's a company out of Nashville called Baldman Percussion, and they make this thing that we've used a ton on like records called the Junk Hat, which is basically like the bottom half is a trash can crumpled up kind of. The top hat is a piece of wood with a bunch of chains hanging down, so the chains clam on top of the trash. So we just took the trash part, flipped it upside down, and put like a splash symbol under it, and I don't know, some rattly stuff on top. And then instead of the hi-hat thing, we just put the dotted eighth note accent on the junk. The melody you hear me trying to figure out in the original voice note became the saxophone and guitar melody in the final song. Just like with Angelo and Josh, I sent Brian Plouts and Jared Yee demos for them to start working on their parts. A lot of it came with just us working on it together. I don't know if it was for the recording session or if we like did a rehearsal before, but it was a lot of like just going back and forth and just like making really small adjustments. The very first you know, statement of this melody is kind of a turn or like some expressive thing. So like, is it a super fast triplet? Is it a super fast 16th note or 32nd note? Just like getting the right feel of like being on top or behind or something was, it took a lot of just repetition and like call and response to like get it in our ears. And there are a couple moments where it's like that, where it kind of flips around. So it's just a matter of like trying to emulate the guitar which is funny because it's like saxophone trying to emulate guitar, but to my ears, it sounds like a guitar melody that's trying to emulate something else. You know, it doesn't even sound like a guitar melody per se. For me, I just have to play it over and over and over again and, and make sure it feels like the way you're playing it, how fluid it is, and like make sure we're one unit, you know. <laughs> I recorded the guitar melody doubling the saxophone part, but played a slight variation of it, filling in some of the gaps with the quicker little grace notes, trying to create a sense of urgency and forward motion. Over that, the guitar part from the original voice note turned into this angsty, pop-punk-sounding riff that became one of the main foundations of the song.
make some of the articulation cut through a little better, I also double the melody on the banjo. I'm not really a banjo player at all, and mostly just use it as a production tool to double guitar melodies that need to sound a little more organic. And finally, I added some rhythmic parts that act almost like percussion parts, similar to a shaker or a tambourine. And together, all the guitar parts sound like this. The most important part that transforms this song from a rock guitar based idea into something more dreamlike is the keyboard part. The synth sounds like an arpeggiator, but it was something that I wrote on guitar first that seemed to work a lot better on a synthesizer. The challenge came in trying to make this very simple arpeggio that doesn't really change throughout the whole song sound like it was actually developing without feeling repetitive. There's a lot of beauty just in stasis, and so I love actually parts that kind of just stay the same because even just as a musician playing it, I feel like I can get into a meditative state, and I think it evokes that in, in the listener. Primarily for me, like there's like this sort of real beauty in repetition that I think is worth just appreciating, and if you appreciate that as a performer, I think you can just play these parts you know, with more connection to the heart. So there's that, but then the other side of it is also just like, I think there's subtle ways to allow something to grow and develop with the surrounding elements of the song, since this is a song that itself develops quite beautifully. So on the one hand, there's a lot of stasis in the part, but on the other hand, if I just play it with the same sound in the exact same way the whole time, then that doesn't actually accurately reflect sort of what's changing around it. And so one of the things I was trying to do was sort of like, you know, experiment with just very subtle shaping of things like filters, very subtle modulation to some of the synth parts, and also just experimenting with bringing in and out different layers. And I'm a sound design nut, so I love just messing around with combinations of different sounds and seeing how they interact with each other, seeing how they interact with the music, and seeing what side of the part that they bring out. And so I had a lot of fun just sort of experimenting with shaping the sound temporally and also just layering stuff in and out and just seeing if that brought out anything interesting in the part or complemented the section of the song that that part was going through in a particular way. When it came time to record bass for the album, I reached out to Julia Adami, who I'd only played with once before, many years ago, in another project. But I remember loving her approach to playing music right away, and asking her to play on my music was always in the back of my mind. You probably gave me more than almost anyone ever gives me for in terms of like a solid framework for recording at home. Most of the time I'd get like a click and maybe MIDI drums. Like it's not even, it wasn't even often that I'd get real drums. and you kind of realize all of the tunes already, even though they're MIDI demos, but like I got a sense of what the tunes were. For me, everything comes down to articulation. I always try and be like very conscious of that. So I think just making that 
extra clear and intentional is usually like one of the first things I try and do. Trying to get that like to feel good <laughs> is definitely something that I, I kind of looped a bit to like sit right and um, yeah, it was a fun baseline. <laughs> It was a strange new kind of reality for all of us, I think, to have to record and play with people virtually. Obviously, it's not ideal, but having, quite honestly, having something fun to do when there was not a lot happening was like, it was really nice and really exciting. And it made me, I think, dive into the music more than maybe I would have in like a regular session. I felt like I really got to spend time with it. Um, more so than I would have in normal life. I'd do, you know, I'd record two tunes in a day rather than like, okay, we have this studio for this amount of time and we've got to get all six tunes done, you know, which is what life was. So there, I guess there is a little bit of a silver lining. Yes, it's strange, but it was kind of nice too. In the early part of my writing process, I had been thinking a lot about tradition and the idea of losing something that has been passed down from one generation to the next. The title post-tradition was a question to myself. Do we slowly lose our traditions over time as they're handed down to us, or is that simply inherent in the process of creating new traditions? As someone who never studied music formally growing up, my musical tradition was songs and bands that me and my friends like to listen to. There wasn't one style or one culture that represented the music I was learning from. So what then was my tradition, and what is it now? I'm from the Midwest as a white guy, like upper middle class. So what is that tradition? Like it's not, you know, some. if I was from the South, maybe it'd be like country music or something, but I don't know. It's not like clearly defined for me. But also like I would hate for anyone to assume what tradition I'm coming from. And, like, I can't really feel like I'm coming from the jazz tradition. I mean, I studied it a lot, but what is music study other than just, like, listening to music a lot and trying to emulate it? So in that, to the same degree that I studied jazz, I also studied, you know, classical music and studied um, pop music. I mean, the only traditions that I guess I feel like any tied to would be, like, the music that I really like or that I grew up playing. And for me, that would be, like, you know, right now is a lot of like indie pop and indie rock music. Growing up, there is such a long period of jazz. And then there's also like a really long period of gospel music. But for any of them, I don't feel like I fit. But I also wouldn't want to. This song and this record became a way for me to feel comfortable in my own skin. Understanding that the sounds I hear in my head are all a part of my own unique tradition allowed me to lay the foundation for what this album was going to sound like. You know, I am Chinese-American. You know, my parents were immigrants from Beijing. It's really crucial for me to explore the question of identity. I think just from a standpoint of just being comfortable in your own skin, I think that's imperative. Like, I think I grew up my whole life with a lot of shame around the things about, you know, the way I was raised or the way that I look um, or like the worldview that my parents tried to impart on me that I felt were really embarrassing, you know, to me at the time. 
and then as an adult, it turns out that like, well, wait, people have been taking from these traditions and unapologetically taking from these traditions for decades. Breakdancing was super influenced by like martial arts movies, for example, you know, it's just like, wow, like, you know, like people have been unapologetically finding cool stuff about these traditions while at the same time society at large and me also has been making me feel kind of queasy about those very same traditions and so I think it's been a process of sort of just coming to terms with that and being comfortable with it and celebrating those aspects of history that and tradition that are part of my childhood and upbringing and the way I see the world now as opposed to running away from them. Post Tradition wasn't a song I was originally going to include on the album. I was done with pretty much all of the writing and came up with the main melody almost as a side note, perhaps for a later record. But the more I worked on it, the more it seemed to pull me in and started to define the whole album. A lot of the music on this record is dark and foreboding, but this song feels more like a release. I've been trying to write about my identity for years, but never could articulate my thoughts in a way that seemed complete. Post-Tradition is a celebration of finally understanding what I've been trying to say, feeling a little bit more comfortable in who I am. Mm -hmm.